0: Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar series, Caring for Individuals with Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live in the fall of 2015. This webinar series is presented by the Lewin Group in collaboration with Community Catalyst and the American Geriatric Society and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to ensuring beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care to Medicare Medicaid enrollees, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts, please visit resourcesforintegratedcare.com. In this podcast, Dr. Elizabeth Gaelic, Associate Professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, will explore the assessment and diagnosis of dementia.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. We're going to spend some time now talking about the assessment and diagnosis of dementia and how it can be helpful in your practice. So on our next slide... Um, For individuals with a complaint um, uh, of cognitive decline, it is important to identify treatable conditions that could cause or perhaps contribute to the underlying symptoms that they're experiencing. So in our first case with the gentleman coming in with his daughter, Um, and we found some evidence of some cognitive decline and some functional impairment, it would be important to help rule out some of these treatable conditions, things like depression, substance abuse. Um, Maybe he had a few drinks before he got in the car to to pull out the door, or before he even came into your office. Does he have any vitamin or mineral deficiencies? Or is there um, a problem with his central nervous system, perhaps a tumor? The other thing we need to think about um, R is delirium. So, um, because delirium can mimic dementia, can be things like medication side effects, particularly medications that act upon the central nervous system, or other medical conditions that may be acute, such as a dehydration, an infection, uh, low oxygen levels, such as in hypoxia, or perhaps an acute exacerbation of a chronic illness. In our next slide, um, we're comparing depression, dementia, and delirium. And the most important take-home point, really, out of this slide is that these syndromes often coexist. Because individuals with dementia are more prone to depression and they're also more prone to developing uh, delirium or acute changes in their mental state. So for delirium, The the things that really help differentiate it is the sudden onset, um, the fluctuating course in terms of symptoms, and that someone's attention is really disrupted where you'll see it's intact with both dementia and depression. There's more of an abrupt decline in function, and you may see um, fluctuations in terms of sleep-wake cycles. In our next slide, we're just briefly reviewing components of the diagnostic assessment uh, for a cognitive complaint. We want to make sure that we have a good history uh, of of the patient's challenges and problems, that we do a thorough physical exam, a functional assessment, a mental status exam that includes some cognitive assessment, and then last, consider some additional diagnostic tests if they are warranted. So First, we're going to focus on the patient history. and Here, you want to get an idea of the onset and the progression of the symptoms. Were the changes that have been seen, has that just been something over the past few weeks, and perhaps a new medication was started two or three months ago that may be contributing to it, and perhaps it could be a delirium, or is this something that's been started you know, maybe a year or two ago. There's been some gradual progression of the symptoms. So you want to get an idea about that. You also want to have a description of the nature of the symptoms with focus primarily in three areas. What cognitive changes are noticed, functional as well as behavioral. So cognitive would be things like memory complaints, um, if they're having trouble perhaps finding words or if their judgment is off, functional may be, um, like in our case, the gentleman was having trouble doing his taxes and paying his bills in addition to driving. And then behavioral may get at some of the neuropsychiatric symptoms that we sometimes see in conjunction with Alzheimer's disease, such as delusions, hallucinations, depressive symptoms, uh, sleep disturbance, wandering, etc. It's also helpful to find out if there's a family history of dementia, and you want to ask about the age of onset, what type of symptoms the person had, and progression. It's helpful to interview the patient to get an idea of their perception of the symptoms. In many instances, their perceptions won't necessarily match what the informant tells you, but it will give you some insight um, into their um, their own insight and their judgment regarding their deficits and what is important to them. And lastly, and I, I can't stress this enough, just as Dr. Callahan had, it's very important to have a reliable informant and to engage that person as part of the interview. And if at all possible, and we'll talk about some ways to do this in a few seconds, um, to have this reliable informant interview be private. Uh, Because in many instances, family members or or professional caregivers who are with the patient may not feel comfortable um, giving you all the detail that you really need in terms of the history in front of the patient. So in our next slide, we're talking a little bit more about patient history. We want to make sure that we review the medical history as well as the patient's medications. Have there been any recent changes in either of those areas? We wanna pay particular attention to medications um, such as anticholinergic medications. Oftentimes, these are things that um, people may take for urinary incontinence or often anticholinergic, narcotic medications that people may be taking for pain, or psychotropic medications, basically any medicine that acts upon the central nervous system because this may be a clue to an underlying delirium. We also want to find out if the person has had any recent falls or trauma, if there's any substance use history, either um, current or in the past. And then it's also important to have an idea of the individual's personal history and what type of social support they have. Uh, what, their, what is their educational level like? Um, what did they do as an occupation or hobbies or interests? And what is their current living situation? And is anyone there to support or help them? In our next slide, uh, we're going to briefly discuss some strategies for success when gathering a history. So, In a busy um, practice, whether you're in primary care or other settings, it's helpful to have a few uh, moments to review medical records in advance when it's possible. Um, because some workup may have been done at another place and you don't want to have to reinvent the wheel there. So it's helpful to be able to look at those ahead of time so that you're not flipping through documents or flipping through the computer while you're with the patient and family or caregiver. It also may be helpful to obtain some preliminary history from the caregiver prior to the appointment. With um, the emergence of uh, EMR systems now, Some practices are using um, history gathering tools that the informant can fill out or that the patient can fill out online before they come in, or it may even happen on paper. Uh, Sometimes family members or other caregivers may call the practice um, or the provider ahead of time to mention some concerns. And then lastly, and perhaps what I find to be most useful is really having a team approach to care and so that at the time of the visit, um, you're having mutual activities. So both the patient and the caregiver are involved in the assessment process simultaneously. So the patient may be um, with um, the nurse doing some cognitive assessment. And you know another team member, perhaps the social worker, um, may be getting some information from the family member. In our next slide... Um, and this gets on to kind of case finding really where, where someone is not necessarily coming in with a chief, com- uh, chief cognitive complaint. However, you may notice um, during the course of the visit that some red flags go up. And these could be things about the patient is consistently late for appointments or gets confused about the location, uh, that the, pa- uh, the patient may not remember recent events or conversations, or when, an indiv- when a patient comes in with a uh, caregiver and that individual is constantly referring questions to the caregiver for them to answer. Or perhaps you just may notice that their dressing is not what it used to be, or they may have some poor hygiene. And these could be um, some red flags to trigger further assessment. In our next slide, we're talking about the second component, which is uh, the physical examination. So you want to do a careful physical examination to identify acute medical problems with particular attention to a neurologic assessment and a musculoskeletal exam, particularly looking at um, gait and balance. Perhaps the individual may have had a stroke and you may be able to pick this up um, on a neurologic and musculoskeletal exam and that can give you some clues to a diagnosis that may be more vascularly related um, rather than um, Alzheimer's disease or something else. You want to assess their, stre- their strengths and their reflexes, noticing for any um, weakness or asymmetry. In our next slide, we're going to talk a bit about functional assessment, and some of this is part of the history-taking. Um, as we mentioned earlier. So you're trying to get some of this from a reliable informant in terms of what the patient is able to do um, for him or herself. And it's, again, as Dr. Callahan mentioned, uh, many patients may present and they may be independent or may only need a little cueing with their activities of daily living, but where you may see more deficits is in their instrumental activities of daily living. So things like driving or coordinating transportation or managing finances, um, dealing with a telephone, um, cooking for themselves. And some scales um, that you – there are many, many rating scales designed to do this. Some examples um, for activities of daily living would be the Barthel Index. And the Lawton Index would be a scale that you could use to measure instrumental activities of daily living. And um, additionally, if you have time, having some actual performance time for the, for the patient, you can even, it becomes a test of motor apraxia or their learned motor skills, getting them, um, you could say to them, show me how you would brush your hair or how you would brush your teeth or um, different things like that. And fourth is our mental status exam. And we... In the mental status exam, you need to realize that several factors can influence performance. Educational level, their hearing, their primary language, or their baseline intellectual function. So components of the mental status exam in our next slide includes level of consciousness, appearance and behavior, speech and language, mood, thought content and process, insight and judgment, and cognition. And we'll talk about each of these in the next slide in a little greater detail. So you want to notice if is the patient alert, awake, are they lethargic, um, or are they hypervigilant or um, very, very alert. In terms of... Um, their level of alertness. If they're lethargic, it could indicate a delirium. Their appearance and behavior, you wanna look at their appearance and grooming, as we mentioned before. Speech and language, are they having any trouble finding words or is there a change in their um, spontaneity of their speech? With their mood, Are they making statements that are negative about themselves? Is their outlook on the future poor? This could indicate a depression. You also want to look at evidence of fixed false beliefs, which are delusions or hallucinations, which are sensory impairments without a stimulus or any bizarre thoughts. And then the the last piece that you wanna focus on would be uh, assessment of cognition. And in our next slide, we're gonna go over the cognitive exam. So with a cognitive exam, there's a variety of areas that we want to cover. Memory um, with immediate recall, delayed recall, or remote memory. So remote memory, you could ask them things that happened long ago. Um, for orientation, that's um, do they know where they are? What is the season? What is the month? Verbal fluency gets to some of that, the problems with language. Um, and one thing that you can do with them is get them to uh, name as many animals as they can think of in a minute, in a minute or grocery items. Um, you can give a patient a phonemic cue asking them to name S words, and that's a little more challenging um, for them to do, so they may not get as many. Uh, what you would expect is that people are probably able in, in a minute to get around 20 animals, 20 grocery items, and perhaps 15 S-words, and often that's considered normal verbal fluency. Visual spatial abilities can be assessed through intersecting pentagons, drawing a cube, or clock drawing, and clock drawing, drawing as part of the Mini-Cog, which we'll get to in a minute. And insight and judgment, we've mentioned that before in terms of their awareness of their deficits. You could also give them situations in terms of problem solving. Um, You know, something like if there was a plumbing leak in your home, what would you do? And see what they say. Or if there was a fire, what would you do? And then lastly, executive functioning and ways to assess this quickly could be serial sevens, threes. Or verbal trails where you have people combine numbers and letters um, sequentially. There's a rapid cognitive screening called the MINICOG, which is on our next slide, and it includes three item recall coupled with clock drawing tests. And there's some examples of some of the clocks indicating mild, moderate, and severe impairment. And, um, missing kind of anything with clock drawing or even one item on the delayed recall is considered a positive screen. The next slide um, just shows some additional cognitive assessment tools. Um, Three of them are free for use. The mini mental status exam has been widely used in the past but is now proprietary. And then the last component of our assessment process is considering diagnostic testing. So, there may be some laboratory studies that you would order to rule out metabolic problems, um, electrolyte disturbances, anemia, hypothyroidism, and certain vitamin and mineral deficiencies. And you may also consider ordering brain imaging studies um, that are structural imaging studies, such as a CT scan or an MRI scan, And most of these tests are really used to clarify or rule out other conditions that cause similar symptoms to Alzheimer's disease. And lastly, I'm going to very briefly touch on the future of biomarkers for um, Alzheimer's disease. And this is an exciting um, area of research. A biomarker is something that can be used to measure um, accurately and reliable and indicates the presence of a disease. And an example of that would be To diagnose diabetes, we order a fasting blood sugar, and if you get a certain level, um, that's you then have diabetes. We don't quite have that yet for Alzheimer's disease, but there are several things um, that are um, engaged in clinical trials um, right now. So we're looking at beta amyloid that can be measured in cerebrospinal fluid um, or in urine. Um, and additionally um, biomarkers that can um, be used with PET scans, these are um, radio tracers and then you would do a um, a PET scan and it may show signs of um, beta amyloid in the brain. Now, beta amyloid is a characteristic of Alzheimer's disease but its presence cannot be used to actually give somebody a clinical diagnosis because many individuals may actually have, as Dr. Callahan was saying, signs of beta amyloid in their brain before they go ahead and develop clinical symptoms.
0: For more information about this webinar series and other resources, including videos and podcasts, please visit resourcesforintegratedcare.com and follow us on Twitter at integrate underscore care.